morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Life, Family, Liberty, the weekly radio show and podcast from California Family Council. I am your host, CEO, and president of California Family Council, Jonathan Keller. And as I am sometimes joined, I am today joined by my good friend, former co-worker, colleague in the fight, John Girardi. Hey, good to be here, Jonathan. Uh, John, as some of you may remember, if you haven't been listening for the last few weeks, John used to work with us, and he was actually kind of the impetus behind founding or starting the podcast way back last year. Yeah, there you go. And now he is leading up a great organization, Right to Life of Central California, here in the central San Joaquin Valley. You guys just hosted a phenomenal event last week. Yeah, we had our annual educational dessert, and we focused on the topics of assisted suicide and end-of-life issues. Um, California recently legalized physician-assisted suicide. So we were able to discuss a lot of the legal issues sort of surrounding assisted suicide, why it's bad, and then how to think about different kinds of of end-of-life decision-making questions. You know, what kinds of treatment would it be legitimate to have withdrawn? What kinds of things are happening in California hospitals as it relates to what's called stealth euthanasia? Um, A lot of hospitals are engaging in some ethically questionable practices regarding the withdrawal of basic care, food and water, uh, for certain kinds of patients. So uh, it was a really interesting event and very helpful and informative. And we're we're going to have, uh, if you go to our Facebook page, Right to Life of Central California, you can find the Facebook Live videos if you scroll down a little bit. Um, But we also will be publishing all of the videos and all of those sessions to our YouTube channel, also again on our Facebook page and, and on our website, righttolifeca.org. So uh, you can check all that out if you're interested about thinking, because everyone's going to have to think about these kinds of things for some loved one at some point in the future. You know, what decisions should I make regarding hospice care, regarding this, regarding that? Um, so we just wanted to serve the community as best we can by helping people to think through these these important issues. And the great thing about this event, again, was that even though it was hosted here at New Covenant Community Church in the Fresno area, this is applicable to everybody across the state of California. Oh, with, yeah. with the bill, the assisted suicide bill, AB2X15, that was signed by Governor Brown back in 2015, this is going to affect every person in California, like you said, John, at, at some way, yeah. at some point in their lives, whether it's for themselves or for a loved one. If you are living or dying yeah. in the state of California, this is information you need. So I encourage you strongly to go to the Facebook page for Right to Life of Central California. Also, last week was a huge week in Sacramento. We had a ton of legislation that was being heard inside the Capitol. Two of those bills that we're going to be discussing today are no, not unfamiliar in any way to listeners of this program. Number one is AB 569, dealing with the rights of all businesses, but especially faith-based colleges, universities, pro-life organizations, churches, etc., to be able to enforce and require codes of conduct on key issues. Second bill is SB 179. This is the so-called third gender bill, or as I've been kind of calling it, the the California translation of the first chapter of Genesis is uh, God created the male and female and dot, dot, dot. 
And that's kind of where we're at in the state of California, believe it or not. So we're going to talk about that bill, SB 179, with Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Matt Sharp. Matt's new. You will enjoy listening to him because a lot of our attorneys are from either their Scottsdale office or their D.C. office. In this case, uh, Matt is from their Georgia office. So you'll get some of that that sweet southern twang when he comes on and joins us in the next segment. But before we get to that bill, I wanted to give you a little bit of a recap on AB 569. Uh, Again, we've told you about this bill. AB 569 would require all all organizations, all businesses, anybody who hires someone in the state of California would not be able to take any sort of disciplinary action. They would not be able to have any sort of code of conduct related to quote-unquote reproductive health decisions. And I, I think we all know that in the state of California, especially when a bill is sponsored by NARAL Pro-Choice America, reproductive health care decisions is not referring to pregnancy. It's really referring to abortion. This is some audio that we have from our friends at the California Catholic Conference. Last Tuesday, April 25th, they testified in opposition to AB 569 in the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is our good friend Sandra Palacios from the California Catholic Conference. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, member Sandra Palacios representing the California Catholic Conference, and we're in strong opposition to the bill. We've met with the author and her staff to discuss our concerns and certainly appreciate trying to work with her, uh, but we have not come to agreement on this issue as of yet. Um, no one disputes that all employers deserve, employees deserve to be treated with fairness and equity, or that state law should protect the rights and dignity of workers in the workplace. However, as one of the most pro-life and pro-family employers in our state, we take offense that the language of AB 569, um, the arguments in support of the purported need for the bill appear to target religious employers for the most part. The bill impacts all employers, but it's clearly a targeted attack against the conscience of religious liberty rights um, of faith-based organizations and employers. Under existing law, religious employers are subject to exemptions that would conflict with this new mandate, including the constitutional protection of the First Amendment for faith-based employers. We believe uh, AB 569 seems to intentionally target religious liberty rights of faith-based organizations. Although religious employers are exempt from any provision of anti-discrimination law, most still use and enforce codes of conduct, codes of ethics that prohibit employees from being subject to discrimination or harassment. Those policies are often shaped by the employer's First Amendment rights of uh, religious freedom association, which protects the employer's ability to infuse those policies with the tenets of our faith. Uh, We believe ample discretion must be provided to religious employers so as to enable them to fully and adequately carry out their mission and purpose while simultaneously treating all of their employees on an equal, non-discriminatory basis. Unfortunately, the amendments do not address our objections to the bill. For example, the language would express legislative agreement with the U.S. uh, US Supreme Court decision, but not with the majority opinion um, and instead a separate concurrence. Uh, Our research indicates that there is no similar reference uh, reference anywhere in the codes, and when coupled with vague references, uh, such as functional equivalent of a minister, uh, language that does not even appear in the Supreme Court case, this language does nothing but invite years of litigation to try to determine its meaning. And perhaps most importantly, regardless of the legislature's agreement with a sentence or two in the Hosanna Tauber case, that decision, which was reached by the Supreme Court uh, with a unanimous vote of 9-0, it remains the law of the land, and the provisions of AB 569 only invite conflict. Um, with its holding. Um, And finally, AB 569 is amended, disregards the value of religious employers in California, almost seems to invite lawsuits by employees automatically. But it it goes beyond that, also inviting claims by dependents of employees, creating a new kind of third-party claim that we do not yet believe exists anywhere in current law. 
AB 569 only increases the burden on employers in California and in many cases will directly violate the First Amendment rights of religious employers, leading to expensive and unnecessary litigation for years to come. For these reasons, we respectfully request a no vote on AB 569. Thank you. That was our friend Sandra Palacios from the California Catholic Conference up in Sacramento. One thing that I will tell you, I think she did a great job from speaking, testifying in opposition to bills before I can tell you that it is a little bit nerve-wracking to try to fit everything in in the allotted time. In two minutes. Yeah. 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 And the fact that you just have to rush through, the fact that you have these consequential bills, uh, John, just as a side note, a point of personal privilege. I I, I was going to play a second piece of audio, but we'll wait for that until a little bit later okay. in the show. <laughs> but I, I think it is absolutely obscene and borderline democratically immoral, if I can put it that way, coin a phrase, that you have a bill that would literally regulate every single Organization, every single business every in the employer. state, every employer in the state of California, a state with 40 million people. It's going to get two minutes of debate. Two minutes of debate. And, and this is not just in some random, oh, yeah, you know, this is the announcement. This is the press conference. This is the Senate judi- or the Assembly Judiciary Committee. Yeah, where the, they examine all of the legal ramifications of passing a law. It's, yeah. It's, that, that's the thing. California has 40 million people. We only have... 120 legislators. Total. Yeah, 40 senators and 80 assembly members. We have the most disproportionate representation of people to legislators of any state in the country, and it's not even close. I mean, we're like three times more disproportionate than the next closest state. Right. And as a result, I think it results in a lot less careful consideration and review of our legislation. Stuff just gets shoved through because there are only like seven people reviewing it on this little assembly committee. So, of course, there's not a lot of review. Uh, Basically, you have these powerful special interests like NARAL and Planned Parenthood who run the show, and they say, okay, here, this is the bill we want you to pass. Make it happen. And there's just very little chance to argue about it, debate over it, anything. Uh, It's... It really is. I mean, we're barely still a democracy anymore. Yeah. And I am, I'm so grateful for Sandra and our friends at the California Catholic Conference and all the other groups across the state that are opposing this horrible bill. Uh, when we come back, we're going to shift to another one of the key bills that is making its way through the legislature with our friend Matt Sharp, attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll be back soon on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, radio show and podcast from California Family Council. I'm your host, Jonathan Keller, joined again in studio by my friend, John Girardi from Right to Life of Central California. Hey, hey. And also joined on the phone, this is kind of our developing weekly segment with our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. This is our fourth week in a row. We've been able to keep the streak going. So far, we've had Eric Stanley, Christiana Holcomb. Caleb Dalton, and this week we are joined by the Georgia contingent of Alliance Defending Freedom, Matt Sharp. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So we were joking in the last segment that you do not reside in the the traditional ADF hotspots of D.C. or Scottsdale. So tell us how you ended up in Georgia and about a little bit about your work with ADF. Sure. Well, as my accent probably gives away, I'm a I'm a Southern boy, born and raised Tennessee, and and now Georgia. So they will. Uh, Figured they'd probably, 
better keep me down here just to uh, hold this southern contingent and uh, <laughs> keep, keep some of the crazy policies from the rest of the country from working their way down here. But I've worked on a, a variety of cases. Primarily, uh, it started with public school issues of kids wanting to share their faith at school and and be able to invite their ki- their classmates to church activities and things like that. And then in the few years ago, as we start to saw this gender identity issue pop up in public schools, as parents were calling saying, we're now finding uh, boys in our daughters' restrooms and locker rooms at school. It was sort of a, a natural transition for me to start working on those issues. So it's really for the past few years one of, been, uh, one of the areas I've really been focused on is protecting the rights to privacy and what are the implications of rejecting the, the classic understanding of, of sex and gender, that there are males and there are females, and, and it's based on bio, biological realities. Well, and I have to say, I've mentioned this to you before, so I almost feel a little bad admitting this, mea culpa, but a lot of times when I've got to hear you speak at different conferences we've been at, whether it's been the one wonderful one that your colleague Kelly Fedoric hosted last year back in D.C. in November, or when you came and spoke for our National Family Policy Conference in Arizona last July, whenever you get up there, uh, as much as I like you and I enjoy the accent, sometimes I kind of uh, tune out a little bit because I think, oh, you know, this is California. We've already adopted a lot of these SOGI policies, there really isn't anywhere else for us to go. I mean, we're so far down the uh, the primrose path. How much worse could it get? And, and then the state legislature surprises you every year, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So, uh, Matt, you and I were talking about this last week, and this bill, SB 179, uh, it really is the first in the nation in a lot of ways, and not in a good way. That's right. You know, we, we've seen pop up here and there a situation where a, a rogue judge has allowed a person to change a document to reflect their chosen gender identity or really a third gender. We've seen some do a non-binary or agendered or something like that. But this is the first instance we've seen a state change its entire laws and, and make it so easy for someone to reject their God-given gender and to embrace this, this new created third gender, which is really nothing at all. So it really is a a first-in-the-nation move by California. Well, and the thing I appreciate about you and Kelly and your whole team there, Gary McCaleb, that have done so much great work on this and and other SOGI issues, is that the the whole issue of sexual orientation and gender identity, the the need for privacy, goes so far beyond just, you know, the bathroom law in North Carolina. It goes so far beyond just what is existing on a single state document. You guys have done so much legwork and so much wonderful research on this. Tell us a little bit, since you are an attorney and since we have my my other wingman attorney, John Girardi, here in the studio, tell us a little bit about the two key provisions that we discussed on the phone last week, and I did bring up at least one of them in my testimony, uh, specifically Title VII and Title IX, and how that relates to this whole issue of sexual orientation and gender identity. Right. So a lot of people are probably familiar with these. They may not know, you know the, the formal names, but these are the laws that ban sex discrimination. Title VII does it in the employment context. Title IX does it in higher ed and, and any school that receives federal education dollars. So it's the law that's been responsible for providing females equal opportunities, equal sports teams, and, and other programs. And, and they've been great laws with, with very laudable goals but unfortunately are now being used to redefine what sex means and things like that. But what's interesting is so if you read these laws, they're still premised on an understanding that there are two sexes. In fact, throughout it they talk about, you know, if uh, whatever is offered to one sex must be offered to the other sex. 
and repeated references to both sexes, referring to male and female. And one of the basic provisions is whatever you offer one, you have to offer the other. So as we were looking at, at SB 179, this creation of a new third gender, well, how does that impact under Title IX? Would now every educational institution in California be required to provide equal dormitories, locker rooms, sports teams, and other programs for this new third gender that are offered to boys and girls at all of these schools? And so you think of the potential liability to economic impact this is going to have on schools if now they have to have a non-gendered basketball team, a non-gendered dormitory, a non-gendered whatever. You really are exposing these schools to a lot and something that really flies in the face of of Title IX and what it was designed to do. Yeah, and in my testimony, which folks will play in the next segment so you you can hear the full length of it, but we did some research and the state of California has about 150 state-funded colleges and universities between the University of California system, the California Community College system, and the California State University system, about 150 institutes of higher education. But we have over 10,000 public schools in the state of California that serve K-12 through students in some capacity, whether it's you know K-6 through or high schools or continuation schools. 10,000 campuses, Matt, that would now be subject to both this new understanding of gender and Title IX. Yeah, I mean, it, it's staggering. I had no idea there was that many, but that's exactly the, the implications of all of this, is that every public school in the state would be subject to this and also subject to the requirements of Title IX. And under Title IX, a non-compliant school is subject to lawsuit, subject to loss of its federal funding. And so all it would take is one student to show up at their school, assert a non-gender identity, and they could potentially sue the school if the school didn't create sports teams, didn't create opportunities, dormitories, if you're talking about colleges, for them. And so this is really going to be something that imposes a huge liability risk on schools across California. And beyond the issue for K-12 through students, I mean, already in the state of California, we do have a transgender bathroom bill for public schools. So that does apply to students just on the bathroom and the shower level. But the fact that you would have to have now, in theory, an entire third team is pretty crazy. But, Matt, beyond this, we've just got about a minute left here. But the other thing that's crazy to think about is that this extends so much farther beyond the educational setting. If you have a third gender, you think of every single public restroom, public shower facility. I think of all the gymnasiums across the state of California. What restrictions would there be under a law like this that would prevent any male, let's say, a straight male, from, they don't even have to physically transition. By the way, folks, remember SB 179, there's no requirements that you have a, uh, you have any sort of medical consultation. You don't have to have a doctor's note that signs off on this. Matt, wouldn't this mean that you could be a, a straight male, declare yourself to be non-binary, and then you could go into any female facility in the state of California. Absolutely. There are no restrictions, no limitations, no nothing. All it takes is a simple assertion of me that I'm now non-binary, and I get access to any facility I want at any time for any reason, and no one can even question me on it. And that's the problem with this. The government needs the ability to be able to protect the privacy and safety of its citizens. And so we need laws that allow the government to do that, not ones that allow individuals to take advantage of this and access whatever facilities they want in violation of the rights of others. Well, Matt, Matthew Sharp, 
Matt Sharp from Alliance of Many and Freedom. Thanks so much for joining us today. If people want to follow you, I know the website is ADF Legal for the Alliance Defending Freedom. But for you, are you on, on Twitter or Facebook or post anything separately, or just should people go to the main website? Yeah, go to the main website, and I uh, occasionally post on our blog and other sources there. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for your help. We really appreciate you and all your colleagues at ADF. We'll uh, have you back again sometime, but folks, make sure you tune in again in the next segment for more on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. If you're listening to the podcast and you hear me say that at the beginning of every segment, I apologize, but since it is a radio show as well, we have people that are getting in and out of their cars. We want to make sure that they know who they're talking to. I am Jonathan Keller, the President and CEO of California Family Council, uh, joined in studio by my friend, John Girardi. Hello. Double Domer. There you go. Hey, John, I have to ask you, since we have to have our obligatory Hugh Hewitt uh, segment discussion yeah. on the show. Well, he got my boy, uh, he got Deshaun Kaiser from Notre Dame exactly. on, on the Cleveland Browns. So uh, I'm, I'm sure they will both be, both sides, both the Browns and Deshaun Kaiser will be thoroughly disappointed in each other. <laughs> I think Kaiser is probably not that great. And I think the Browns, I know, are not that great. And it's yeah. just going to be a disaster. So, And I know we don't do a lot of sports talk on this show, but I always Not forget. a lot, not a lot. I always get Malik Zaire and Deshaun Kaiser mixed up. So well, was... they're pretty much interchangeable parts. So. <laughs> it's, it's not like there's any great Notre Dame quarterback out there. Not for not for a long time. So. No, no. Uh, it's been downhill since Joe Montana. So. Was he? Wait a minute. Was he? He was a Notre Dame quarterback. He, he did... was the Notre Dame. I mean, he's the most famous quarterback Notre Dame's ever produced. See, so I have. I probably should edit this out of the podcast technically to <laughs> not give away my horrible, horrible lack of 1970s, 1980s. Well, NFL trivia. But. Well, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that are slightly more consequential, uh, I want to again thank <clears throat> slightly. Our, I want to thank our friend Matt Sharp from Alliance Defending Freedom, who is a wonderful attorney who's got some great resources and great information on this, uh, and many other bills that we've been discussing. Let's go ahead and play my testimony first, and then when we come back, I want to actually have you discuss some of the issues you worked on. You told me an interesting story about prisoners' rights to privacy. Oh, yeah, sure. And I think that'd be a good way to kind of end this segment. But let's sure, start. Let's do it. This was me in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee last week. This is SB 179, my testimony in front of that committee. Good afternoon. Thank you, Chairwoman. Thanks for having us. And my name is Jonathan Keller. I'm the chairman and CEO for California Family Council. Uh, we're an organization that represents tens of thousands of individuals and churches, nonprofits across the state. I, I want to begin by saying, first off, that we do not oppose SB 179 out of a lack of compassion. It is our belief that even though we may disagree on this particular bill or on other issues from time to time, we believe that every person in this room is created in the image of God. And every person deserves unconditional love, dignity, and respect. We also believe that no one should ever be harassed, mocked, or abused because of their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or their gender expression. We have three brief concerns with the bill. The first is the issue of minors. Obviously, we all know that changing one's gender identity is not a light or transitory manner. Our concern is that SB 179 does not merely lower the age for changing one's gender, but removes it altogether in conjunction with the fact that it removes the need for any sort of medical oversight, it means that a child as young as three years old, which is quoting Senator Atkins, 
in a report to the Bay Area Reporter, would be allowed to change their gender with no oversight or consultation from a physician, psychologist, psychiatrist, or other child development specialist, and that concerns us. Secondly, briefly, Title IX. The bill, as it's currently written, would create a very difficult administrative situation for the state of California. The third gender would be subject to Title IX, which could mean that California's 150 public universities and over 10,000 public schools serving K through 12 students would be required under federal law to not only provide male and female athletic teams and facilities, but non-binary facilities and teams as well. So we worry about the costs and the administrative uh, entanglements in, in line with that. Finally, the one concern that we also do have is regarding the lack of a de definition from the phrase fraudulent purpose in the bill. Obviously, uh, we realize that there are people who sincerely need the effects of this bill. But we're also concerned that straight individuals could potentially, without any definition of fraudulent purpose, they could abuse this bill for unintended consequences. And with that, we would just respectfully ask that as it's currently amended, uh, we would respectfully ask uh, for a no vote, but again, with great respect and uh, compassion on the people that have testified today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So one thing that I think we wanted to point out in our testimony for that bill, John, was that we were very concerned. There are some really heartbreaking stories of individuals there who I believe either they themselves or their children were suffering from gender dysphoria. Yeah. And I think the last thing that we want to do is to make it seem like we are uncaring or mean or angry or right. that we think these people should just, you know, go hide in a closet. I mean, right. everybody, we and I, and I said this at the beginning, everybody is created in the image of God. Even if they are suffering with deep either sexual trauma, psychological trauma, or physiological trauma. There, mm -hmm. was, there was, I don't want to get too graphic on the podcast, but there was an a individual there who is legally intersex. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a disconnect between her physiology, the genitalia that she has, and her chromosomes. Right. And she expressed the fact that she was in her 50s or late 50s. She expressed the fact that back in the 60s when she was growing up, there were um, yeah. much more complicated rules about the way you treat people with that. And she said she was subject to some very invasive and some very, frankly, mutilating surgeries. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that people that are suffering and experience those types of issues really do deserve our compassion. They deserve our respect. But... Uh, you're familiar as an attorney the, the phrase that hard cases make bad law. Sure, and and the answer isn't to create a third gender. The answer isn't to create completely do something that will require a third class of bathrooms and sports teams and everything to be added to every single public school in the entire state of California. That's not the answer. There's certainly compassion and kindness towards people with those issues and maybe greater awareness of people with those issues that it's called for, but to then come in with this sweeping legal change to completely alter, you know, the whole structure of Title IX uh, seems bizarre and overreaching. Yeah, I absolutely agree. When we come back, John, I want you to be able to share a little bit about the issue we didn't even have a chance to discuss in the testimony time, which is how this affects people that are incarcerated, whether it's yep. whether it's prisoners, whether it's prison guards, it's a whole can of worms. We will also be joined for a short time in this next segment by my coworker Greg Burt from Sacramento. 
Make sure you're tuned back in here in just a few minutes here on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty. I am Jonathan Keller, your host, joined in studio by John Girardi and joined on the phone by my coworker, Greg Burt. Greg is from the Elk Grove area up near Sacramento. He is our director of capital engagement. Greg, I know you've had a very busy couple of weeks here, but before we get to you, we went in the break talking about the Fourth Amendment and the Eighth Amendment as it relates to SB 179. Yeah, so Jonathan wanted me to talk about this. In in a previous life, I was uh, an attorney and I worked on some constitutional law issues relating to uh, jails and prisons. And basically, when you're in a jail... When you're an inmate, your rights under the Fourth Amendment, which protect you against unreasonable searches and seizures, you have less rights, but you still have some rights. And one of the things in particular you have a right against in the Fourth Amendment context is while you can be strip searched as a prisoner, there's a whole body of law developed from Supreme Court cases going back to the 70s, but then all of the different circuits in the country have their own circuit circuit court law revolving around the question of who can strip search you. And the consistent thing we see throughout the country is that if you're a male inmate, you can only be strip searched by male officers. If a female officer does a strip search of you, if a female officer is looking at you while you're naked or, God forbid, touching you at all while naked, like patting you down or something, Mm -hmm. that is a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. And vice versa, if you're a female inmate and a male officer strip searches you, that is a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. And it could even constitute, if it's egregious enough and systematic enough, it could even constitute an Eighth Amendment violation, which is prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. So if in the context of the prison your punishment is not just being incarcerated, but also being sexually molested or something, Mm -hmm. uh, being constantly leered at by someone of the opposite sex while you're naked, that could be an Eighth Amendment violation. So basically basically the question arises, well, if we're entering entering this brave new transgenderism world... Non-binary world. This non-binary world, do we need to have a whole staff of non-binary correctional officers who Hmm. will do the strip searching and searches and things like that for the non-binary prisoners? I mean, how is that going to work? I mean, our whole Fourth Amendment jurisprudence within the context of jails and strip searches is premised on the idea that there are only two sexes and that men should only strip search men, women should only strip search women. And again, folks, this is something when we had Matt Sharp on earlier in the show, he mentioned the fact that there's not a single law like SB 179 in the entire nation. And it's just insane to think that California is trying to go down this path and that they are, I think, charging headlong into a blatantly reality-denying set of yeah, principles. I mean, they, they just don't see all of the consequences that are going to result from this legislation, which is what happens when you only have like five legislators looking at something yeah. that's going to affect 30 million people. Well, and on that note, Greg Burt is with us, as we said a little bit earlier. Speaking of legislators, this bill is introduced by two state senators who are Democrats. But, Greg, we want to be kind of an equal opportunity offender here. Unfortunately, we've had two consecutive hearings now, the transportation hearing and the Judiciary Committee hearing, where I testified last week. And in each of those cases, you had a prominent Republican that not 
they, they laid off the bill. They didn't even vote no or ask a single question about this bill. Yeah. Tell us about uh, that's, that's about true. that. I, I know the individuals. It was it was Pat Bates, Senator Pat Bates, in the Transportation Committee, and John Morlock in the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, it, it seems that these folks are still trying to make up their mind about what they think about these type of bills. So that's why it's, it's so important that people communicate with both these Orange County senators who are in conservative districts that this bill is of concern and that people have strong opinions opposing them. Uh, so these, these senators are still trying to make up their minds and still, they said they're still trying to, they need more information. So people need to give more information. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think this is something that we're going to do. We're going to send out some emails to folks this week encouraging you to call your legislators. I, I think so often, we've mentioned it on the show before, California Family Council is not a partisan organization. And I have some friends that are Democrats. I have some friends that are Republicans. Sometimes I think we have Republican friends that think, oh, well, I don't have to call the Republicans. They're going to vote the quote-unquote right way. They know what we stand for on the issues of life and family and religious liberty. Well, unfortunately, folks, they don't always know that. And Greg, I know from your time in the state legislature, legislators would only vote the way that they were hearing from their constituents. They, Or at minimum, they would at least stay quiet on a bill. They might not vote for it. But if they didn't perceive backup and, and support from the grassroots, they wouldn't do anything, right? No, that's, that's correct. And, and that's why it's so important. If, if pastors are listening out there, you need to realize that you have an influence, not only to speak about gender issues in your own church, but that you encourage folks and you yourselves call and have an influence on these legislators. Because I think, on, for whatever reason, this particular issue, there's still a lot of silence. <laughs> and um, so we can't keep that up. We cannot be silent on this bill. Yeah, and unfortunately, this has already passed through, really sailed through both of the committees. In both the Transportation Committee and in the Judiciary Committee, there was yeah. one no vote in each case. In the Transportation Committee, it was our friend Senator Mike Morrell who voted no. In the Judiciary Committee, it was our friend Senator Joel Anderson. But that's yeah. not going to get it done, folks. We need to no. persuade both Republicans and Democrats that this is bad for Californians. It's bad for families. It's bad for our, as John said, our correctional system. It's just a bad bill all the way around. So, Greg, uh, we want to make sure people can follow you on Twitter. Remind me your Twitter account so people can follow you there. Well, the best way to do it is follow our blog uh, on our website. I'll be writing stories about this. I'll be updating folks about how these bills are coming forward. They both go to the Appropriations Committee next, so that's our next fight. It's going to be a big fight both in the Senate and then once they cross over into their respective houses. Greg, thanks for joining us. We'll be back in just a few minutes here on Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. Thanks again for joining us today on Life, Family, Liberty, a production of California Family Council. Thanks to our guest today, Matt Sharp from Alliance Defending Freedom, Greg Burt, our Director of Capital Engagement for CFC, and my co-host in studio, John Girardi. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, no problem. I did want to end on a little bit of a 
positive note or national note, I guess, yesterday was the 101st day of President Trump's presidency. So there was, at the radio shows and the TV shows over the weekend, there's all sorts of discussion about what does this mean? You know, how, how is all this being affected? Matt Continetti from the Free Beacon, Washington Free Beacon, wrote a very interesting blog post talking about the Democrats' first 100 days, <laughs> kind of flipping the narrative on its head. And I want to play you this short clip from Meet the Press yesterday. This is Chuck Todd talking to a panel and getting a response from MSNBC's Chris Matthews. Back now with the panel. We've been talking a lot about the first 100 days of Donald Trump, but what about the first 100 days of the Democrats? Um, i got to read you this interesting quote here from Matthew Continenti, a conservative Washington Free Beacon, but he wrote, writes this. What the Democratic Party has yet to understand is that its social and cultural agenda is irrelevant or inimical to the material and spiritual well-being of their former constituents. And until the Democrats recognize this fact, their next 100 days will be no better than their first. I'm going to guess Chris Matthews you agree with that. Well, yeah, well, I think I was talking about it earlier, a lot of it's cultural, not just economics. And I think that the position Hillary Clinton, for example, took on abortion, your late term abortions, fine, uh, fund, federal funding, get rid of the Hyde Amendment, pushed too far. I think a lot of the people came out and voted in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, were pro-lifers. And they just with all with all Trump's problems, morally, personally, whatever. Uh, they didn't like Hillary's position. I think the party moved too far to the left on you know, cultural issues. So, folks, this is something that I think is a little bit of a good sign. The left has overreached. We've seen it on the pro-life issue, as Chris Matthews is saying. We saw it happen with them wanting to try to have such aggressive abortion policy that it harmed Hillary's electoral chances. Then we've also seen it happen now. I think you're starting to see it happen in the state of California, where they're attacking so aggressively on this issue of transgenderism and of non-binary gender. I am hoping and praying that you see eventually a similar backlash, a similar pushback on issues of values that you have seen in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, etc. So make sure you go to our website. You can find out a lot more about this and other issues, californiafamily.org. And join us next week right here on this station for Life, Family, Liberty.